Well, good morning. I wanted to begin today by telling you guys three stories. The first story is about a man named Barry Fox. Maybe. Did I break it? There we go. This is Barry Fox. Barry Fox was an executive with a company called Bear Stearns, who many of you got to know during the Great Recession of 2008. And in 2008, actually May 2008, Barry took a, a drug overdose and he leapt from the 29th floor of his office in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and died. He jumped when he learned that he wouldn't be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, who was buying Bear Stearns. And in the days that followed, we learned that, that Barry was devastated by the implosion of Bear Stearns and the financial hit that it meant for him and his family. A close friend, when speaking about this, said, this Bear Stearns thing happened to be the last straw that broke his spirit. Second person I want to introduce you to is a lady named Kylie Basuti. Kylie grew up and, and from a very young age, all she wanted to do was be a model. And so in 2009, Kylie won a contest in which 10,000 other young girls had entered. It was a Victoria's Secret model search. Kylie said, Victoria's Secret was my biggest goal in life. It was all I ever wanted. And then she won. But right before she won, she got married. And as she began to enter into this world, having won this contest, she became extremely conflicted because the nature of her work, the influence she was having on young girls, and her marriage were running up against this work that she was doing, where she was the object of millions of searches on the internet. Kylie reflected, she said, I finally achieved my biggest dream, the dream I always wanted, but when I finally got it, it wasn't all I thought it would be. The third person I want to introduce you to is a man named Perry Noble. In 2000, Perry planted New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina. For reference, Anderson's population is 26,000 people, smaller than Prescott, smaller than Prescott Valley. And over the last 16 years, the church has grown to over 35,000 people in weekly attendance across 15 campuses in South Carolina. In 2015, it was named the third fastest growing church in the country. However, on Sunday, July 10th, which was ironically my first Sunday here at Cornerstone, and I never forget the way these dates coincided, Perry was fired from the church he started. In a letter he wrote to the church that was read that day by the chairman of their elders, Perry said, in my obsession to do everything possible to reach 100,000 people and beyond, it has come at a great personal cost in my own life and created a strain on my marriage. In my opinion, the Bible does not prohibit the use of alcohol, but it does prohibit drunkenness and intoxication. I've never had a problem using al drinking alcohol socially, but in the past year or so, I've let myself slide into the overuse of alcohol. And then he said this, this was a spiritual and moral mistake on my part as I began to depend on alcohol for my refuge instead of Jesus and others. I have no excuse. This was wrong and sinful and for it, I am truly sorry. You see, in each of these events, Barry, Kylie, 
and Perry. I didn't plan on them all rhyming. Each of them describes something that we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about, and it's the subject of idolatry. And most of us, as refined 21st century people, say, I don't have any small metal gods in the corner of my house that I bow down on my knees to every day. But each of them, in their stories, described the ultimate outcome of worshiping a god. And finding that God unable to deliver on its promises. For the next six weeks, we're beginning a series called Freedom, Breaking Free from Our Idols. And this series is our pre-Easter series. If you don't know, Easter is six weeks away. I know it's crazy that it's already here. It seems like yesterday was Christmas. Over the next six weeks, we'll be exploring the idols that we've become enslaved to and the ways that they're keeping us from freedom. In six weeks, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and how he had victory over the grave. And it's my conviction that one of the reasons in our culture that Christmas far outstrips Easter and its significance is not theological, but it's related to our preparation. You see, in the scriptures, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if you take away the resurrection, if the resurrection doesn't happen, if the tomb is not empty, he says three things. Then we are to be pitied among all mankind. He says our preaching is in vain. He says, and we are to be looked down on among all men. Easter is everything. And so my goal over the next six weeks is to lead us in preparing for Easter. And my prayer is, is that on this road to April 16th and Easter celebration, that we would allow God to reveal in our hearts the idols that have come in and allow him to show us the places where we've looked to something other than him for our hope and for our freedom. Now, it's important for us to begin this series with a definition of what is an idol. And so I have one for you. It's in your uh, handout in your bulletin that you got in when you walked in today. And the idol definition comes from a man named Tim Keller. In Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, which I uh, highly recommend you read. There's a, uh, information on it at the bottom of your handout on the back. Um, Keller defines idols this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. I'm going to read through that again because it's a little bit to take in. Keller says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That is an idol. And based upon that definition, I believe that each of us have at least one idol in our lives. We say things like, man, if I only achieved that, I would be okay. Or if I was only able to gain their approval, I would feel secure. Or if I was only able to get there, then I would have arrived. Or if I could only purchase that or afford that or arrive there, then everything would be okay. When we speak in these ways, we're speaking the language of worship because we're saying that thing can give us what only God can give. 
And so this morning, my big idea is this, that any gift from God can become our God. Any gift that God gives us that is a good thing, we can make it into a God that we worship. At the heart of idolatry is taking the gifts of God and worshiping them instead of the one who gave the gift. And this morning, we're going to look at how one man took a gift from God and how the gift from God became a God in his life. And to do that, we're going to be in the book of Genesis, chapters 12 through 22. Some of you know that I like long passages of scripture, but trust me, I'm not reading 11 chapters this morning. But if you want to, you're, well, you're welcome. Um, I have plans today too. Um, but one of the reasons why I'm telling you this is that I know a lot of you are unfamiliar with certain sections of the Bible that, that you just don't hang out in. And um, outside of, you know, January, when people read through the Bible, I think most of us don't hang out in Genesis a lot. And in Genesis 12 through 22, we meet a man who's named Abram. Uh, later on, we, we rename him Abraham, and there's a song about him. You know, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and yeah, thank you very much. Um, so let's just praise the Lord. And so Abram's story kind of covers at least just this section. And so I've got a map here that I'm going to kind of show you to kind of introduce you to his story. So in Genesis 11, Abram and his father are living in Ur of the Chaldees, which is almost where Baghdad is in uh, southern Iraq. And God calls them to leave, and so they move from Ur up towards Haran. On the way, God calls Abram. He says, go to a land I will show you, but he doesn't tell him what the land is, and so Abram has to follow God blindly. And he goes from Haran all the way down to Egypt, and ultimately he returns to the land of Canaan. And in the land of Canaan, God promises him that he's going to bless him. He says in Genesis 15, I'm going to make your nation so great. I'm going to make your descendants so numerous that they will outnumber the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. So the next time you look up and see the stars, that's a sign of God's promise. Abraham looked at those same stars and he said, that's how many descendants I'm going to have. It's an incredible promise, but one of the challenges that developed was that Abraham and his wife could not conceive. They didn't have the accessibility of modern medicine to do fertility treatments, and adoption wasn't an option in that day. And so they began to wait decade after decade after decade after decade to have a child. Abraham thought maybe the, the servant of mine, a man named Eleazar, maybe he's going to inherit everything. They said, maybe, maybe God wants us to take matters into our own hands. And so Sarah gave her servant to Abraham, and, and they had a child named Ishmael. And there's still conflict as a result of that action in our world today. And God promised to bless Ishmael and his descendants, but he says, no, I'm going to give you and Sarah a son. And so after between 60 and 80 years, which is hard for me to comprehend because I've been alive half of that, After 60 to 80 years, God finally delivered on the promise. Sarah became pregnant. And that's where we pick the story up in Genesis 21. In Genesis 21, verse 2, it says, And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham as a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. 
And God called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old. So some of you think you had children late in life. And his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, which is the meaning of the word Isaac. It means laughter. Everyone who hears that I had a child at 90 will laugh over me. And they were incredibly grateful that God had given them a son. And that's the place that we're going to spend the majority of our time today. Because this gift from God, this son, becomes a God in Abraham's life. This gift that he had waited 60 to 80 years for became a stumbling block in his relationship with God. And so this morning I have three lessons about Isaacs because I think all of us have an Isaac in our life. I think we all have a part in our story that links to Abraham's story. So the first lesson I want to share with you is that our idols replace God as the source of our hope. Our idols replace God as the source of our hope. We know that we've taken a good gift from God and made it our God when we begin to look to that thing instead of God for hope. And we read in Genesis 22 what God did for Abraham once this had happened. In in Genesis 22, verse 2, this is what we read. Sorry, beginning in verse 1, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. I mean, I don't know about you, but I hear that story and I go, Excuse me? What? This man waited 60 to 80 years for a son. And God says, make him an offering. Kill him. And God knows. He says, Isaac, your only son, whom you love, offer him up. Now you have to understand, in that world, it was very different from our world. Yes, infertility is a huge challenge that impacts many couples even sitting in this room. But in that world, children were even greater than they are in our world. There's a reality in that world called primogenitor. And what it meant was the oldest son was the hope of the family. The oldest son was going to inherit everything. The hope of the family was not in the father's success or the family's success. It was all on the older son. And so if you couldn't have an older son, if all you could have was girls, or if you didn't have any boys, or you couldn't have any kids, your family was done. Didn't matter how hard dad worked. Didn't matter how successful he was. Everything rose and fell on the oldest son. Now contrast that to our world, which is driven by individualism. And so it doesn't make sense to us, but in this world, Abraham's hope for his, his legacy and his life is all in this son, Isaac. I mean, he even, he even slept with his wife's servant to try to create a male heir. 
and created this animosity in his household. I mean, the Jews and Arabs are still at war because of that action thousands of years ago. And so Abraham and Sarah, they have Isaac, and Isaac embodies all of their hopes and their dreams. I mean, the pressure on that child? I mean, you think only childs in this world have problems. I mean, Isaac needed massive amounts of therapy. I mean, he was just, he was so screwed up because Abraham had put all this love and hope on him. And I think that God knew that this gift to him was either on its way to or had already become something that he worshipped. It had already become a god. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller discusses the difference between sorrow and despair. Most of us have experienced sorrow. We've lost something or someone and just been overwhelmed by grief. We're, we, we cry at random times and for random reasons. We, we, we feel like there's... Um, just this dark cloud over us. We know what sorrow feels like, but despair is far greater than sorrow. Despair goes to something deeper. Despair is this crushing weight that says, I'm not sure I want to go on. I'm not sure I want to keep living. I'm not sure anything's worth it anymore. You see, you know when you've moved from sorrow to despair, when, when you're contemplating ending it all. When your drive is completely gone, we know that we have an idol in our life, that when that thing is gone, we don't feel sorrow, we feel despair. When you lose something or someone in your life and you're not sure that your life is worth living, that thing isn't a good gift from God, that thing has become a God. And you've begun to look to that thing for what only God can give And many scholars suggest that God saw Abraham's idolatry of Isaac and his shift in Genesis 12 where he followed God, where he didn't know where he was going, to Genesis 22 where God says, sacrifice Isaac, that something had happened in Abraham's heart. And God was going to deal with that idolatry because the hope of Abraham was no longer in God, it was in God's gift. And one of the questions we can ask ourselves to determine if we have an idol is the question, when have you felt crushing despair? When in your life have you felt just crushing despair? Maybe you're in the middle of crushing despair right now. And is it because you lost something that was a good gift that you turned into a God. Remember, any good gift from God can become our God. So the first lesson is that that we put our, our hope in our idols, not in God. The second lesson is that we run to our idols during a crisis. We run to our idols during a crisis. When we get in crisis, we discover where our idols are because that's where we run for hope and security, for sustenance and encouragement. And in verse 4 of Genesis 22, this is what we read. It says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they both, and went both of them together. 
And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. You got to, I mean, Isaac is a young boy. He's like 10 or 12. Um, Dad, uh, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? See, Isaac is aware of what's happening. And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. I mean, I I try to put myself in these very human experiences because Abraham wasn't just this God. He was a man like me. And he spent three days walking from where he lived to Mount Moriah. Can you imagine what that walk was like? He's walking with his son going in three days when I get there, God wants me to kill him. What did he tell Sarah before they left? Where are you going, Abraham? Um, on a walk. You taking Isaac? Yep, he's coming with me. Okay, see when you're back. Maybe. Maybe not. I mean, what's Sarah thinking? There's no record that he told her. I mean, sometimes husbands keep things from wives, but man, what do you do with this? And along the way, I have to believe that Abraham prayed a prayer that I believe is the most common prayer God hears. Why? Why, God? Why do you want me to kill my only son that I've been waiting 60 to 80 years for? Why? We don't know. We don't know what it looked like. We don't know what the conversation was. But we know in that moment that Abraham had an opportunity. He could either run to his idol and cling to Isaac. Or he could run to God and he could cling to God. And what he decided to do in that moment would change everything. You see, we all have sanctuaries and gods in our lives that we run to when life doesn't make sense. You see, for our friends Perry and Barry, it was money and it was alcohol. Massively successful men. I mean, his church is as big as the town you live in. And he had more money than most of us will ever see in our lifetime. And yet, when it all came crashing down, so did his self-worth, his image, and his reason to live. I mean, if there's ever been the term rock star pastor, it was Perry Noble. And yet, it was so overwhelming and the demands were so... uh, heavy on him, that instead of turning to God, he turned to alcohol. He lost everything. You see, they ran to their idols in a crisis, and we do too. We run to things. Remember the definition of idolatry? Anything you seek to give you what only God can give, that's your idol. So when life falls apart, what do you run to? Most of us don't run to God. We run to the gifts of God and to them we find our refuge. For me, for years, this was my idol. Rockstar energy drink. You might say, Scott, that's pretty pitiful. Well, all of our idols are pitiful. And yours are just as pitiful as mine. You see, for years, I... um, I was functioning every day with this routine. I would begin my morning with a 32-ounce iced coffee. And I'd pound that in less than an hour. After lunch, I would go to Circle K and buy one of these. 
And then some evenings I would buy another iced coffee. And I did that every day for years. You say, Scott, how did you not die? I don't know, but I'm still alive today. And when I got overwhelmed with relationships or school or family, I didn't turn to God. I said, I'm just going to go get another rock star. And this became my refuge because I would drink some caffeine and I could avoid what I didn't want to deal with. I could numb out what I didn't want to be aware of. I could just power through. And it's no different than Barry's money or Perry's beer. It's all the same. See, when we're in crisis, we run to our idols and we look to them for what only God can give. And many of us in this moment go, okay, you know what, Scott? I've got a problem. I've got to double down and work harder. You go, man, I just got to have more willpower. I got to be stronger. Here's the sad news I have for you. If you were going to beat your idol on your own, you would have already beat it. If you were going to overcome it on your own, you would have already overcome it. Here's the thing. We're not going to defeat them by our willpower. In his book, Gods at War, which is another great book on idols. It's at the bottom of your handout today by a guy named Kyle Eidelman. Kyle says, idols are not defeated by being removed, but by being replaced. See, many of you know this because you've traded idols over, over time. When you were younger, it was alcohol. Now it's work. Some of you, it used to be work, and now it's working out. Some of you, it used to be wine, and now it's shopping. Some of you, it was, it was shopping, and now it's Facebook. We just trade them in and out. And Kyle says, you can't defeat an idol by removing it. You defeat it by replacing it. And the challenge for all of us is not replacing your idol with another created thing, but with God. You all sang the song today, Christ is enough. Is he? Tuesday night at midnight? Wednesday morning at 10.30? Thursday at 4? Is he enough? And if you don't believe he's enough, you'll look to a rock star or a bonus or the next promotion or a new dress or a new vacation, or a new car, or a tall boy, for what only God can give. The third lesson is that breaking from our idols is often a brutal process. Breaking free from our idols is not easy, it's not quick, and it sure is not comfortable. We read how this story comes together in Genesis 22, 9 through 13. It says, They came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to, bound, to bind Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I mean, he's going to go through with this. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Buts, and thank God in the Bible for buts. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And the angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes 
and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Some of you said this, this story is the craziest story in the Bible. No, I promise there's crazier. That's why, that's why you should read these sections of the Bible you don't get to. What's so interesting to me is that it says behind him was a ram. When we are looking to our idols for what only God can give, we're not recognizing that God actually has our provision there. We just can't see it. For many of us, the ram is caught in the thicket behind us and we can't see it. So we don't believe God is providing for us. So we look to our idols instead. Instead of trusting that God has the provision there and when we need it, he will deliver it. God calls us to let go of our idols. And it's often in the letting go that we finally discover that what we need is right there. In Galatians 5, Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ set us free when he died on the cross and forgave our sins. We celebrated it with communion today. But many of us have chosen slavery again. We're free, but we don't live like it. We're free, but we choose to enslave ourselves. God's desire for us is freedom. And we have to recognize that our idols enslave. If you have an idol, you are enslaved. And we're Americans. We hate the idea of being anybody's slaves. We're free. And yet many of us don't actually experience that. Think about the story of Kylie. She got all she ever wanted and then realized it wasn't what she thought it was going to be. She was disillusioned. And when she stepped away, you can, you can Google her. There's a whole controversy surrounding her, questions about her character and attacks on her. And I don't know. It's like a he said, she said. All I have is what she says and what Victoria's Secret says and what the Today Show says. I don't know. But here's what I know. When you decide that you want to be free, expect resistance. Expect pushback. Because there are other people that benefit from you being enslaved. There are other people who benefit from you having idols. In Romans 8, Paul says, He who did not spare his son and gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You face resistance, but God promises to give you what you need as you pursue freedom. So I have some next steps for you this morning on the back of your sheet. The first one I want to let you know is that next week, we're going to talk about the first idol. And the first idol is love and sex. Now, all my friends say the best way to drive church growth is to discuss love and sex. Um, But that's not why we're doing it. We can't talk about idols without talking about these things. And yet I know many of you have children who are under the age of seventh grade in this room, and I want to give you some opportunity to take advantage of the great program we have for kids under seventh grade. And you say, Scott, why seventh grade is the cutoff? Well, nearly every data point I read says that students beginning in sixth or seventh grade are exposed to the idols of love and sex. 
and you can protect your children, that's fine. But we're going to try to equip you and empower you to help them not to get enslaved even at 11 or 12 years old. So that's what we're going to discuss next week, and we'll see if talking about love and sex drives church growth. We'll see. Um, Here's the first next step. Use the diagnosis questions to begin identifying your idols. You say, Scott, what are the diagnosis questions? Well, underneath point one, there are six questions that I stole from Kyle Eidelman, and here they are. What disappoints you? What do you complain about the most? Where do you make financial sacrifices? What do you run to when you're overwhelmed? What infuriates you? And what are your dreams? Now, none of these things are necessarily bad, but they reveal, or they can reveal, where we've taken a gift from God and turned it into a God, where we've taken a created thing and worshiped it instead of the creator. So these would be great for you to review on your own. These would be great for you to dialogue about in one of our small groups. You can get information on those at the belong table in the lobby. But I can't tell you what your idols are. Only you can. But these would be some great questions to reflect on. Second, I want you to pray this week a prayer. I want you to pray every day this week for God to reveal your idols. That's a bold prayer. I was in one of our small groups this week, and they said, hey, I I really didn't appreciate your series on forgiveness. You gave me too much homework. Well, one of the the things we said in that series was a bold prayer is to pray for... Is there a bomb about to go off in here? Um, One of the things we said is pray for the person who hurt you. Well, if that's a bold prayer, this is an even bolder prayer. God, I don't want to have idols in my life. Show me what they are so you can begin to deal with them. And the third one is if you haven't trusted your life to Jesus, do so today. There are some of you in this room that you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. And so as a result, you've never been able to get free from your idols. And today could be that day where for the very first time you break the chains of slavery and idolatry and step into freedom. My prayer is that in this season, chains would be broken in our church and in this city, and that we would arrive at Easter people who actually can celebrate and appreciate freedom because we're experiencing it. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you gave your life so we could be free. Thank you so much for going to the cross so that we could live no longer as slaves. God, I I have to believe that there are some people sitting in this room or who are watching online who've never actually tasted that freedom, who've never trusted their life to you. And God, we can't become free without you. If we could, we would already be free. And so if you're here this morning and God has been at work in your heart using somebody as broken and sinful as me and you realize today that you want to be free and you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus to lead you to the freedom that you desperately want, would you be so bold as to raise your hand? Would you raise your hand if you're ready to trust Jesus for that freedom? Well, with everybody's 
eyes closed and head bowed, if you raised your hand, I'd encourage you to pray silently along with me. God, I want to be free. God, I'm done with being a slave. God, I know that I'm broken and I chose things that led me into slavery. God, I, I know that I could have run to you and I ran to other things. And God, it's, it's a mess. God, would you come into my life and set me free from these things I can't find freedom from on my own? God, would you come in and forgive my sin and heal my wounds and lead me to freedom? God, I surrender and trust my life to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're gonna sing a song this morning called uh, Come to the Altar. And whether you've never trusted Jesus before or you trusted him a long time ago, but an idol has crept in, I not only encourage you to stand and sing these words in a moment, but actually practice them if God is leading you to to come forward and invite God to show you where you have idols in your life and where he wants you to experience freedom. Would you stand and sing with us this morning? Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.